So I'm going to begin this morning by reading Ezekiel 47, the first half of that chapter. We join Ezekiel on his tour of the temple with his angelic tour guide. Ezekiel 47. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but it was now a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Englaim. There will be places for the spreading of nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Now this vision of Ezekiel may strike us in some ways as surprising. We've been with Ezekiel on this tour of the temple, seeing the promises of God's presence among his people. But, but, but what happens here? Ezekiel is shown by the, the angel there's a, a trickle of water. Now, if you have a, somebody come to do an assessment of your home or you're looking to buy a home and you find a trickle of water near the foundation, this is terrible news. But but here it's good news. Ezekiel sees the water flowing from the, the south side of the altar, and it, and it flows eastward. And so he turns, but the, the gate to the east has already been closed. You cannot exit it because it's a promise that God made that he would never leave his temple. So Ezekiel has to take sort of the roundabout course to, to figure out where this river will, will lead. So he, he exits by the, the north gate and kind of wanders around to the outside of the temple. There he sees the water continue to flow, and, but without tributaries, this water continues to increase in depth. This is not an ordinary river. This is a miraculous river. Ezekiel wades into the water, first at ankle depth, then to his knees, and then to his waist. And then it becomes a rushing torrent that he cannot cross. So that the angel looks at him and says, ordinary man, son of man, this simple human, do you see what's right in front of you? Ezekiel then is taken to the river bank. 
where there are trees growing. And remember, what flows east geographically from the temple in Jerusalem is largely desert. If you were to take a trickle of water and pour it out on the desert floor, it would quickly be consumed. But this river gets deeper and deeper, ignoring really the contours of the land because it's, it's a miraculous vision. What takes place is this water goes down. There are, there are trees growing, miraculous trees that give fruit in all seasons. You don't have to wait until it's the, the harvest season. Today is the day of, of, of the miracle harvest. And then the water reaches the shores of the sea, which you and I still call the Dead Sea. You've seen the pictures of tourists there floating in the waters, the, 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 the salt and mineral content, content so great that you can't really swim in it. You merely float. There are no fish that live there. This is the, the lowest point on land on the entire earth, and the water flows down to this point and brings a radical renewal of life. There are so many fish that the, the fishermen will, will spread their nets across the, the shore. They will gather, but, but even that, that note there in verse 11, the swamps and marshes will not become salt. There will still be, there will not become fresh. There will still be some salt. That, it's because what is this Dead Sea good for? It's good for the minerals here, the, the salt. It can be traded around the world, and God is not going to take that away. It's even necessary in, in temple worship to have access to this. And so God is bringing radical renewal here. And as Ezekiel enters into the water, he, he, it's really here an invitation for us to, to come in, to join him. There is refreshment of grace. And this isn't that moment, which is this is the time of year, when if somebody tells you, hey, the water's fine, at this point in the year, I'm not sure you can trust them. Particularly if they're standing in the, in the pool and they've got that, that shocked look of, of pain and panic on their face with the cold water. And they say, no, no, it's really fine. No, this is, this is that midsummer's day, the heat of the summer, when the person standing in the water says, come in and be refreshed. But Ezekiel does is he offers you more than, just, more than just water. This image is an image of grace. Because wherever he is in this river, when, it, when he looks back, what is its source? Where does it start? It starts at the temple itself. It flows from God himself. God is bringing radical renewal, radical change, radical transformation. Now, you and I live in a, a day and age when, when there are whole sections of the bookstore dedicated to change. When you and I can walk in, and, and you and I, we, we have ways, we, we understand Things in this world aren't right. They need to be fixed. And, and, and we go through the, the effort, great effort, great expense to bring about change, to, to lean into it and say, I, I can fix this, whether it's through, through education or it's through, through, through exercise or, or through our wealth or, or whatever category of self-improvement. We say, I could, I could fix this. And yet you and I have, have this deep longing that things aren't right. Something needs to change. I need help here. And so Ezekiel's miraculous river of grace is a picture that, that really captures the imagery that spread throughout the scriptures. I mean, you heard it in our call to worship. There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God. It's a picture of renewal and refreshing of life. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, the rivers flow to bring life to this garden. There, the, the tree of life giving hope and promise to Adam and Eve. 
This image of, of waters flowing, of a river flowing, is, is picked up later in the Old Testament. Zechariah, writing after the time of Ezekiel, he writes this in, in Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9. He says, on that day, he's, he's looking ahead to that day, when the day that Ezekiel is promising when God will make everything new. Uh, Zechariah says, on that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. This is a picture of God's renewing grace. I want you to turn with me into the New Testament to John chapter 7. The Gospel of John is one of the four accounts given to us of the ministry of, of Jesus from the time between his incarnation and his ascension when he came to earth as a baby and so we turn in John to John chapter 7. We find Jesus at the, the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is the, the great feast of the Old Testament in which the people remembered they were wanderers in the desert who would have died without the direct provision of God. Had he not brought water, living water, to them, they would have been without hope. And so we, we find Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, we find... Look at verse 37 of John 7. He is there on the last and greatest day of the feast. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? This is the feast of tabernacles. Who is it that provides for God's people? Where is the source of water? It's the source that Ezekiel saw. God himself provides water for us. And so when Jesus stands and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. To me. I am God standing in your midst. I am the promised living water. And, and he continues, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus is picking up on the, the imagery of the Old Testament, which, which flows through Ezekiel 37, of the renewal of life that come through these streams of living water. Jesus says, come to me to be refreshed. Come to me to find grace. Come to me to find hope. And then John explains what's going on here. Look at verse 39. By this, Jesus meant the Spirit. The Spirit is the streams of living water, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. I mean, John's giving us the editorial note so that we remember where we are in the story. Jesus stands and says, Come and receive living waters through me, but only through his death which brings us the forgiveness of sins, his resurrection, which promises us life eternal, and his pouring out of the Spirit. Do we have the promises of Ezekiel fulfilled for us? Jesus is the source of living water. And the scriptures that we, we've turned repeatedly to the end of the Bible, from Ezekiel to the end of the Bible. And so let's do that again. Turn to Revelation 22. Because the image of this life-giving, living stream is picked up again. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, when John, the same John who, who gave us the explanation in John chapter 7, when John is taken and given a vision of the new heavens and new earth, of, of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming down. And in Revelation 22, we see the, 
the fulfillment of what we, what we read in Ezekiel. Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the promised picture of God's grace in His eternal kingdom, a river of the water of life flowing from the throne of the Lamb. See, that's the picture of what takes place in the temple. God is present with his people. God has provided the sacrifice of Jesus the Savior. See, see, where? Where will you find your hope? See, as Ezekiel stands in this river, as we stand there with him, we are meant to look back and see the source of hope comes from Christ himself. But where do you find your hope? I mean, maybe you think it's, it, it, it's too easy to just say on that day, some future day, some, somewhere way down in, into the, 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 reset, the edges of, of coming history. You may, maybe, that, maybe that feels too easy. Maybe it's, it's hard to believe it. But where do you place your hope? Because you know the world is not the way that it should be. I don't have to, to construct a grand argument to convince you of that. You instinctively know that when you look at the world. But if this is all that there is, if there is no God, if there is no promise, then what explains that longing that's within you for things to be fixed, for the world to be put right? See, you know there is more to this life. There must be more. And that's the promise that God is offering to us, a promise of radical renewal and transformation that comes through the living water offered by Christ himself. Now let's, let's, let's flip back to Ezekiel. 47 and 48, as, as we conclude this book, as, as these images then, we, we, we see the radical transformation from this living, this, this, this living river, this river of life. But then we see that the people of God are renewed. And, and we're not going to read all, all that comes here, but I, but I want to just, just look at a, a few verses to give us the, the landscape of what's taking place. Look at Ezekiel 47, verse 13. We shift from an image of this river flowing from the temple to a description. We're really getting to look at Ezekiel's map, a description of of how God will offer his promise to be with his people. Look at Ezekiel 47, 13. This is what the sovereign Lord says. These are the boundaries by which you are to divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel with two portions for Joseph. You were divided up equally among them, because I swore with uplifted hand to give it to your forefathers. This land will become your inheritance. And then what, what takes place in, in the rest of chapter 47, we, we, we see a description of the boundaries of the land. And then chapter 48 divides the land among the, the tribes. But unlike a political or a geographic map, this map is really a theological map. It's a, it's a description of, of the, the geography, but it's pointing us toward the unity of God's people and the centrality of God among them. 
So just like standing in the river, we look, what's the source of the river? It's God. When, when we read the, the geography here, we see that God is at the center. So what is the source? What is our hope of life? Because this map, if, if you were to draw it out, would really be, be kind of the, the political state of, of the, the, the Middle East, and then it would be layers, like layers of a cake, each tribe with one layer. And right at the center of these layers is the city of God and the temple of God. But you would never actually draw a map this way if you walked the land at all, because all of the mountains run not east and west, but north and south. These are entirely arbitrary designations, these layers of this cake. But it's, it's taking the axis of the temple. The temple, we were told, faces east. It's reminding us that, that God is at the very center, and if you, if you were to lay this out, if each, if each tribe got an equal territory like we're told, then really even the geography of where Jerusalem is located doesn't matter. The, the city of God is, is put right at the center. It's, it's pushed further north in this map because it's making a theological point. So when you pick up a map, you have to, you have to understand what its, what its purpose is for. Now, on a day that we're sending Jim and Pat to go serve in Canada, I want to tell you another story of an invasion of Canada, a previous attempt, a, a much less successful attempt. It was during the American Revolution when General Benedict Arnold, okay, now you know him as a traitor, but we're not there yet in the story. He's still a general leading his army, and he decides, let's go take Canada for the colonies. If we take Montreal and Quebec, this, this vast region will be ours, and they should hate the British as much as we hate the British. And so he thinks there are only a, a few hundred British troops across all of Canada. If he takes his 2,000 troops, he could easily take Quebec. So he takes his map. They sail up the Kennebec River in Maine, and then they begin to cross the wilderness into Maine. But here was the problem. The map that Benedict Arnold was using was a British map intentionally designed to make the distance, the wilderness, seem much smaller. The actual distance was more than twice what Arnold had anticipated. And so sadly, nearly half of his troops died along the way. They did not reach Quebec before the winter came. They did not reach Quebec with provisions in hand. And so the Battle of Quebec is not one that you and I celebrate as Americans. Still celebrated in Canada because a clear Canadian victory. Arnold himself badly injured in the battle. And eventually the Americans had to withdraw. See, when you pick up a map, you need to know what it's for. Now, now, the good news is, despite the fact that Jim pointed out to me that in this analogy, I've compared him to Benedict Arnold, the good news is, as we send our invading force, they go in service of a greater kingdom. Not worried about political boundaries, but gospel boundaries. But when you pick up a map, you need to know what it's for. See, when, you, when we pick up this map, this is not about the politics of the present day. It's not about the geographical boundaries of a political state. It's not even about geography. It's about theology. What are we meant to see? God is right at the center among his people. God will be with them right in the midst of his people. See, God's temple, God's city are at the center of the land. And, and so let's flip to the very end of the book of Ezekiel. 
We, we see a description of the, the, the portions of the tribe. And then when we go to the center, we see a description of the boundaries of the, the city of God and of the temple of God. And we come to the very end of the book and we find a promise of God's presence. Look at Ezekiel 48, verse 30. These will be the exits of the city, beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long. The gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, there will be three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulon. On the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The distance all around will be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. Imagine those words hanging over the people in exile. These are the people that have been ripped from the land with no hope, with, without God's presence, they fear. Maybe now and forever. That, think of the promise. What is the name of this city? This, this isn't a description of, of who lives there. This is the very name by which it will be known. The Lord is there. That is the great promise that Ezekiel ends with. God is right here in our midst. As you stand in the waters, you look to the temple to find your hope. As you, as you divide up the land, you see God at the center. You find him dwelling in his city. The city named Yahweh is here. And this, again, is, is the imagery which, which is echoed at the very end of, of John's, John's book of Revelation. In, in chapter 21, and, and we've, we've heard these words, echoing again from the book of Ezekiel. In Revelation 21, we read John's vision, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Remember, this is the city that, that Ezekiel told us is named the Lord is there. And so John continues, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you hear the promise of Ezekiel is being fulfilled when Jesus, the lamb on his throne, says, I am making everything new. And see, the struggle for you and I is, is we push Jesus off the throne. We push him to the edges of our lives. Yes, yes, it's, it's okay to believe in Jesus, we might think, but I don't want him controlling my life. I don't want my life centered around him, but centering your life on anything other than Jesus is idolatry. It's sin. It's rebellion against God. But when you find Jesus to be the source of the river of life, 
when you find Jesus to be the, the one who offers you living water, a refreshing hope, then you find freedom and joy and fulfillment because he is the one who brings radical transformation to you. He gives you the Spirit. He gives you everlasting hope. Do you find God to be the giver of life? Do you find your hope in the God who gave his life for you? Ezekiel's vision offered hope, yes, to the, to the people historically. Back in the time of Ezekiel, the people in exile, but it is meant to offer hope to you and I who still live with that longing within us that this world must be fixed. There must be a promise of no more death and no more sorrow and no more tears. We are desperate for it, and it is offered to us here when God himself makes the promise, I will be there. So that's the promise that Jesus fulfills when he stands in the city of Jerusalem during the Feast of the Tabernacles. God offering us the ultimate victory through Jesus who invites you if you are thirsty Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scriptures promise, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus pours his grace upon you. Let me pray as we come to the table. I invite the ushers to come forward. Having heard God's word, we respond by giving of our tithes and offerings, preparing our hearts for the the sacrament that's before us, dedicating our lives, our wealth, to Jesus and his kingdom. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the power of of the forgiveness, the life-giving forgiveness that Jesus offers. Lord, we rejoice that Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus is the one who came and dwelled among us. Jesus has proved his presence and his power. So Lord, we come to dedicate our lives to your kingdom, to dedicate our wealth, that which we have we've invested our, our time and our energy. Lord, I pray that you would take these gifts that we bring now, use them for your glory. Lord, even as your, your scriptures have promised that the, the healing you bring is a healing for all the nations. And so Lord, do that work here in our lives. Lord, do that work through us as a church among all nations, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.